What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. Dr. Amantha Imber is an organisational psychologist and founder of global behavioural science consultancy Inventium, which has worked with Google, Apple, Disney, Lego, Atlassian, Commonwealth Bank and many others to reinvent the way they approach their work. In 2021, Amantha won the Thinkers 50 Innovation Award and also happens to be the host of the number one ranking business podcast, How I Work, which to date has received 3 million downloads and where she interviews some of the world's most successful people about their habits, rituals and strategies for optimising their day. This was actually one of my all-time favourite Human Cogs episodes. Amantha's ability to share practical and detailed tips from the workplace to the wilds of dating after divorce, first of all seemed surprising to me and then it dawned on me that Amantha was able to use her nows for metrics and processes across both domains. So if you are looking to say hell yeah to work or love, then this episode is for you. Here's our fascinating chat with Amantha. That's like Samantha without the S. So, Amantha, we need to start with your name. What is the backstory on the name Amantha? The backstory is I was meant to be called Anthea, but a few days before I was born, mum met an Anthea that she hated. And so she thought, hmm, what sounds like Anthea? Oh, I know, Amantha. So I'll just make up a name that my daughter has to repeat every day of her life. Oh, wow. So that's, that's how I got the name. Okay, big shout out to Anthea as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wherever she is. <laughs> Amantha, so you once had an international record deal for an album entitled Like Samantha without the S. <laughs> Can you sing us a few lines? Oh, no. <laughs> No, that's no, that's a bad question. <laughs> and I've never, right. I've never okay. been asked to sing from that album, which was like twenty years ago. God, I, I wouldn't even remember the lyrics. Okay, all right. You what don't kind, need to what sing kind of that music. That's, what yeah. kind of music was it? What Just kind to of music? So, uh, my ex-husband described it as lonely girl pop music. Did you say lonely? Lonely. 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 Not lonely. lonely as in alone. Lonely but girl. You'd pop. feel quite lonely if you were lonely though. <laughs> you would, That's wouldn't well. you? They kind of, they go together, I guess. So lonely yes. girl pop. So who would be in that genre? Who's someone 20 uh, years on? So I used to describe the style as Alanis Morissette meets Frente. If you can imagine that yeah. blast from the 90s past, which was when I was doing the majority of the music thing in the late 90s. How did you get into music? I got into it. So I used to do quite a lot of acting and I wanted to go to drama school like NIDA or VCA as a 16, 17, 18-year-old girl. And 
my parents decided that that wasn't the career that they had in mind <laughs> but for various like you know lack of stability and I think they wanted their daughter to have a stable life because I also wanted to be a psychologist and I, and I knew that from quite an early age and they said go do a bachelor of arts and you can major in psychology and you can also major in theatre and like you can do your theatre major at, at Rusden which was a campus of Deakin that was renowned for like having really good theatre classes and then they said after you've done your bachelor if then you still want to audition for NIDA and VCA then go for it and you have a blessing also at the same time I didn't learn this till many many years later so I um, used to have a dentist called Stephen who I loved and respected and he was saying to me around that time I think we we're talking about actors that he had as clients and he said yeah they've often got not enough money to do dental work because they don't make a lot of money. And I'm really anal with dental hygiene and knowing that actually freaked me out a little bit and made me think maybe I won't become an actor because I won't be able to afford good dental, dental, dental yeah. work. Uh, not that I've had any feelings, but I later found out that my mum had said to Stephen, can you just tell Amantha like a scary story about what it's like to be an actor? And that they can't afford dental work. <laughs> so there you go. It's true. There's not many toothless actors. Well, but of. they've got them covered with veneers, don't they? So maybe, maybe like once they make it, they can suddenly afford veneers for their rotted teeth that they haven't been able to afford dental work wow. for. Wow. <laughs> and we are laughing about, because first of all, we've had Anthea, but no one likes her. So then you become Amantha, then Stephen, who's, you know, being paid off by your <laughs> mum. It's it's some good storytelling. But underneath that, your mum was really directive with love and good intent in what she wanted Amantha yes. to, to do and what kind of life she wanted to create. What's that like for you now when you think about that, both as a daughter and as a mother? It's She was a good role model. I think the thing that stands out, and I realised I never actually answered your question of the music thing, which I can circle back to because there is a link between the whole acting thing and how I ended up doing an album. But I think like one thing that really stands out about my mum is just she's so patient and I think about being the the mum, so I'm a single mum because I split from my husband about two and a half years ago. And, you know, some days it's really hard to have patience. And as I was saying to you guys before we started recording, this morning was, am I allowed to swear? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. fuck it I. was a <laughs> fucking shit show morning <laughs> um, where basically two hours were lost to uh, what I thought was an imaginary knee pain but turned out to be a real knee pain, went to the GP got um antibiotics for my daughter ointment all bandaged up then she you know goes to school happily but uh but I was just uh, you know those mornings where just stuff is not going to plan with uh with your child and you just feel like screaming and going just get the fuck to school please <laughs> like when you're sitting in the car with them and they're refusing to go to school uh and I don't do that like I'm um, I am quite good at not losing my cool when even on the inside I am screaming uh but my mum I just remember her being so patient and I see her with Frankie as her granddaughter 
and she's just so patient. It's like she's got all the time in the world. And now as a mum, I realise just what a phenomenal quality mm. that is. Mm. So you remember her as having all the time in the world with you as well, because often in the benefit of hindsight, we talk, we see grandparents who have all the time. They're patient and they're less judgmental and they're available and they're present. All, all care and no responsibility. Yeah, because they give the, <laughs> yes. they give the kids back. Mm. But you feel that you had that experience with her as well when you were the child, not just the mother of the grandchild. That's exactly right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Are you a planner? Yes. Like where you describe, you know, your morning, you're a planner. I'm such a planner and I'm a time boxer. So that means I basically book meetings with myself to work on the most important tasks that I have to get done today and today. And, and I'm not very good at just like letting go when things don't go to plan, just, you know, in a in a non-stress like in a stress-free way just going okay, I'm just gonna let that go but this morning I think I was all right like I got home and I'm like okay that big two-hour task that was really important but it didn't have a pressing deadline but I did want to get it done this week it's like I'm just gonna let that go and I'm gonna do it next week and it's totally fine and it, it was a good morning because Frankie felt like I was there for her as a mother and she felt cared for a listened to and isn't that more important than the two-hour task that I really, really wanted to mm. get done? Mm. So, yes, I'm a planner, but I'm trying to learn how to be less uh, less attached to those plans mm. when or things go wrong. More the accountability that you have to yourself around achieving those tasks. The thing is you are the master of tasking. So a lot of your work we know as an organisational psychologist, um, your talent and your skill is actually um, helping people with productivity and and tasking. Um, And so how does that for you play out in terms of the way you manage yourself with all these frameworks and models that you're exposed to through your work? Um, How do you manage yourself? I think I manage myself pretty well, But then when I'm not managing myself well, I feel like a fraud because I spend so much time talking and writing about being productive and using time wisely. And, you know, my podcast, How I Work, is all about exploring the tactics of the world's most successful people and how they organise their day. And I learn so much from that and a lot of it I apply. But then I have days where... I'm just like, I'm procrastinating and I'm distracted by things and I get to the end of the day and I'm like, man, I didn't really achieve anything today. And then I feel like a fraud because I think people think of me as this like, you know, ultra productive, conscientious, high achieving type person. And on the days where I'm not that, and there are many, many days where I'm not like that, I feel fraudulent and I really feel very uncomfortable feeling like a fraud. So then that motivates me to get with the program the following day, which is which is kind of good and bad because I do feel quite guilty when I'm having those days where I'm like, oh, today's a mess. <laughs> like, What are your thoughts on the idea that we're drawn to the kind of work that we do because the lessons that we need to learn sit in that space? I do believe that. And I also believe that's why it's really hard to find a good psychologist (laughs) uh, because people are drawn to psychology just to cure themselves so much of the time. And when it often like when friends are looking for a good psych, for example, they'll they'll come to me for recommendations. I'll often go to my mum. My mum's a clinical psychologist and she'll say to me, oh, Manthe, that, you know, I don't know. I don't know anyone good at the moment that's got room. 
you know, and then and then she'll have a little rant about how, you know, they're just not training them like they used to and stuff like that, uh, you know, which, which I think is fair when I think about the training that she went through. It's very different to what you now need to get qualified to be, say, a clinical or counselling psychologist who is, you know, a therapist in inverted commas. As in it was much more... It was uh, much more rigorous, rigorous in those days. Much yeah. more rigorous okay. in the olden days. And more applied, I would say, too. Oh, way more applied, yeah. way more applied. And so now I think it is hard to find a good psychologist because people go in to cure themselves not, and, and they don't necessarily go in because they're you know, more insightful than the average person or more empathic than the average person. So I've certainly seen some pretty ordinary psychs, but I've also seen some really good ones too. Do you think every, it's not just, it's not just psychs that have this sense of, um, we've talked a little bit on this, about this on the pod and I've talked about it, haven't I? That this idea that you feel that you have to have all the answers because people are coming to you and saying, and you're, and you know, what you and I, I would say, we're both talking about best practice, but that doesn't mean we apply it always in our own lives. So I think I, you said quite, people expect me to have my shit together because I'm a psychologist, (laughs) unquote. Yes, and then I said, and I do not. Well, it's funny because that reminds me of this process that I'm going through at the moment where I'm thinking about Inventium strategies. So Inventium's the behavioural science consultancy that I run and I feel like it's, you know, it's time for, you know, a bit of a strategy reset. Like our purpose will remain the same, but new financial year should probably be thinking about those sorts of things. And I've been working with a business mentor around that and, I realised that I've been putting all this pressure on myself to, to like get it right and have all the answers myself. And I've had a few conversations with people outside the business and whenever I had those conversations, I felt all stimulated and energised and it kind of it got me unstuck when from wherever I was stuck. And then I was lying awake like early in bed one morning and I just had this moment where I'm like, why am I not asking my team for help? Why am I not doing that? And so I I got out of bed that morning and I'm like, I'm going to ask everyone. I'm going to have one-on-ones with everyone on my team. And I just wrote down some questions that I wanted them to think about and have answers to. And I'm about a third of the way through that process now, having one-on-ones with my team to go like, if, like if you were in charge of Inventium, where do you think we should go? Like, what are the customer problems that you think we should be solving that we're not? And what should we stop doing that we are doing? And it's just been so wonderful. And I was having uh, one of my chats with someone yesterday and she said to me, like, sometimes I feel like, you know, you'll have these ideas or these thoughts and I'll listen to them and I'll go, I wonder why she didn't ask me for my opinion. Like maybe she just doesn't value it. And to the contrary, I do, but I put pressure on myself to have all the answers myself and it's almost like it's this sign of weakness if I need to seek help from my team. And that was a bit of a moment for me yesterday Mm. where I'm like, no, like I need to stop seeing myself as an island, which I so often do, despite the fact that I really love working with people and I love having a team. It kind of, it it changed something in me Mm. and made me go, I need to deliberately think like every week, who can I ask for help? Two things. Can I pick up on there? One of them um, is, you know, you teach, you're an expert in innovation, teaching its methodology and practice, and part of the best innovation is brainstorming and seeking a whole lot of diverse and divergent opinions to then, you know, so getting that collective ideation. So I'm surprised, actually, that that you, 
you know, the dog food isn't being eaten, I suppose, in that, you know, going out to all the people around you to try and get that uh, that feedback. Uh, it's, a, it's a you know, just a comment more than anything. Secondly, um, you, you said you're uncomfortable feeling like a fraud and you see yourself as an island. And I'd love to understand, um, you know, w- what's inside that? Is it a need to you're very much into scientific, um, you know, metrics and, and methodologies and measurement of, of innovation itself and other things. Is it a need to prove at that science-based level? Uh, is it a control feature of what do you think it is that underpins this feeling like an island and the way that plays out in your work? Hmm, it's a good question. Like I'm not sure I have the answer to it, but if I were to guess, I... I think it's the high expectations that I set for myself and like I used to be a perfectionist. I've, I kind of gave that up a few years ago because it's not, not all that helpful. Didn't uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, But I bet it yeah, creeps back in. It does sometimes. It does. Yeah. It's funny. I feel like when maybe people look up to me and I sort of feel like, my team look up to me in certain ways that it's like I need to earn that and I need to earn that through like doing the thinking on my own and like sort of proving that I'm worthy of their looking up to-ness as opposed to seeking their help, which suggests that I can't, like I'm not good enough to do it on mm-hmm. my own, mm-hmm. which is I, I like as I say these words, I'm like, Oh, you're an idiot. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, like that's it's, irrational. It's, it's such a razor edge, though, between mm-hmm. achieving, like wanting to go hard to achieve as much as you can, and then perfectionism. Like, it, there's a there's a difficult, you know, the line there. I think. Yeah, and yet I heard you saying more loudly then that what's important to you is that they they feel that you're worthy of their respect. And yet I could also see parts of your brain thinking I would be worthy of their respect if I asked them for help as well. Yes, yes. So there's been some faulty thinking around respect equals um, me having the answers as opposed to respect equaling um, a co-creation, a collaboration and a shared space. Mm, Absolutely, yes, very faulty thinking. Um, Mm. Well, it's probably, well, all, right, but it's probably a really fucking high bar that you're reaching for anyway because you're talented, because you are really globally renowned for the work you do and on your podcast, How I Work, which is the number one ranking business podcast and has 2.5 million downloads. It's gone over three now. Three, three so million, sorry, that was yesterday was 2.5. Yeah, come, on, come on, Mad, so, get it right. So three million downloads. So you've interviewed <laughs> hundreds of like absolute change makers, really successful business people. So it's kind of no wonder that you're, look at all these high bars that you're interacting with, you're learning from the best of the best. Mm-hmm. So it's no wonder you aspire for top of the pops. Mm, definitely. Yes. And and I think like the, probably like growing up, I was, you know, a perfectionist and a people pleaser, which means that you kind of, you strive really hard at school to do well and get good grades. And then that is, you know, what, like, I mean, my parents loved me unconditionally, but they do get excited when I achieve things. Mm. And, you know, that excitement is addictive. And so, you want to do more and more. Of know, course, we all win, do. Winner, and when yeah. we say, you know, you said as a child I was a perfectionist and a people pleaser, but as a 44-year-old, where would that go? Yeah, and, and look, I, I, I have done years of therapy, so I would like to think that I've evolved somehow and I'm very aware of 
my people pleasing tendencies and I think I've I've gotten actually a lot better at not not you know not doing things to seek praise or um or need you know to be accept, liked being or, accepted yeah, yeah or being avoid liked. conflict yeah yeah so definitely my need to be liked has reduced but it was funny because I did get feedback from uh the last time I had a boss which was when I worked in advertising uh as a consumer psychologist and I remember one of my earlier performance reviews with him, he said to me, you know, Matt, the problem with you is that you would prefer to be right rather than liked. And <laughs> and that is just an indication of, like you know, that. my belief in science. Science is yeah. my religion. And it's like I didn't, like with clients, I didn't really care if they liked me. I just wanted them to know that, like, this is what they need to do. This is the correct strategy that they need to approve because here's the data. Based on rigorous metrics. Exactly. And, like, don't be an idiot yes. by wanting to go in a different direction. Uh, so that was <laughs> that was my attitude. So yeah. with that rigorous data, I know you um, you're a, a leading voice on LinkedIn and particularly vocal around what we're seeing now as the hybrid return to to work. What are your thoughts on? Because this is a conversation we are having. Well, I'm having every day with with. Um, corporate clients about what kind of model works and I'm having conversations with individuals about what's not working in the frameworks that they're being invited to step back into. And people are a bit worried about mandating. We've seen, I know you were very vocal about pushing back against certain businesses uh, around them mandating people should return to work because of the complexities around that. But So what do yeah. the metrics say? Yeah. If we don't want to be liked around this topic, let's be and right. And say what people don't want to hear. Yeah, so I think that there are a lot of, like, assumptions around how we best work. Like, for example, a lot of leaders think that to do, like, true collaboration and great innovation, it has to happen in the office. Like, as much as leaders bang on about output over hours... I still feel like a lot of leaders need to see the hours put in to believe that the output is there because I think that most companies don't actually know how to measure output. Like unless you're making widgets for a living or unless you're, you know, say managing a contact centre, like if you're managing knowledge workers, how do you measure output? And certainly a lot of the clients that we work with at Inventium honestly don't know how they're measuring output despite the fact that they say they care about output over hours that's the the design of the system itself was based on time-based industrial model metrics presenteeism that was Mm -hmm. one way to measure you clock on you clock off um it's a binary way to measure you know a worker but that's that's a reality isn't it so yeah yeah quite difficult to say well how do we move to a value-based metric and then how do you create equity in that because some people contribute inherently more value than others say a knowledge yeah. worker might contribute more mm. to an organization than say someone who's crunching numbers for yeah. example mm. yes definitely in terms of human connection i mean that can certainly happen well virtually like via video or over the phone certainly some research that i've read suggests that you know face-to-face is going to deepen that human connection but I don't think that that means that we need to be mandated to be at the office three days or more a week, which is what a lot of organisations are doing. So I think that what leaders are missing is that um, autonomy and having the choice and flexibility around where you work and when you work 
is actually a key driver of motivation. Like according to, to one theory of motivation, self-determination theory, it's one of the three levers that you can pull that is really important to drive human motivation. And I think that a lot of leaders completely underestimate that. Which is underpinned by trust. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because you have to trust people if you're going to give them freedom. And I think, you know, a lot of leaders still don't totally trust their people. Yeah which is kind of crazy because then why did you recruit them? And then if you inherited them, why didn't you put more energy into upskilling them or move them on or move them into a different role or something like that? Like I know that that's easier said than done, but don't work with people that you can't Mm. trust Mm. because that's lose-lose. It's Mm going to be bad for you, but it's also going to be bad for the people that the person or people that are reporting into you because no one wants to have a boss that you feel like you don't have their trust. Uh, And that is that that theme's coming up a lot in conversations I'm having and people aren't using the word trust. I don't know that they're identified as, you know, obviously as that, but that's what I hear when they say, um, you know, I've been asked to be there three days a week. I don't want to be there three days a week. I haven't been there three days a week for the last two years. So I'm not clear why now I need to be. And what's implicit there is they think I'm going to stitch them up in some way, in some way. Mm. Am I going to be doing the washing or am I going to be on the phone or on Facebook? Or what am I what what is the breach of trust there? So I think it's important that we have that we call that for what it is and say, what is your fear? What's your worst case scenario that when I'm working at home won't serve you well or serve the organisation or our stakeholders well. And people are frightened to have that conversation. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but to call call it what it is, there's something that we're not fully believing in each other. And so we need, that's why we make, that's why we mandate anything because we can't naturally settle into that space together. I couldn't agree more. And I just think like to be on the receiving end of that, like I haven't had a boss in 15 years, but like just trying to put myself in the shoes of someone that is on the receiving end of that, that's got to feel lousy. That's got to feel really lousy. And then, and then like I look at business leaders, leaders of some of the bigger businesses that are trying to, you know, reinvigorate the economy through bringing their staff back. And it's like, hang on, you're like, you're putting that ahead of the people that are serving you. And the reason why you're in business and why your shareholders are happy or not happy, but hopefully happy. Like that's just, that's mental to mm. me. It's not it's listening. Absolutely mental. It's not listening. I wonder if there is something though around we're not post pandemic yet, but wanting to go back to what normal looks like, that it will be some signal that if we go back into offices that, that life has gone back or over the, the curve. So we're not going back. It's, we, we can't go back actually up the river because we've changed. There's been a step mm. change, of course, in the world at large. But I just wonder if there is something around trying to snap back to what is known to be how we were yeah. and there's comfort in that. I mean, that definitely makes sense from, from a human nature point of mm. view, but it's like, We've all changed. Mm. Like I remember I, um, I, was, I was being interviewed for a story a few days ago and the topic was earning the commute and, you know, she was asking me, you know, how can leaders earn the commute in inverted commas? And that's really, that's a really hard question. I mean, what can leaders do to say to their staff, okay, it's time to give up five to ten hours a week more for work, yeah. like just so you can come into the office. And it's like 
you know, free coffee and snacks doesn't really cut it. That's not worth five <laughs> well, to ten hours of my time. Actually, you and I first connected many years ago in 2016, I think, um, in San Francisco, yes. in Silicon Valley, on an innovation tour. And uh, happy clappy in and out of all the big startups, Airbnb and Google and all the rest, to look at their ways of working, their innovation methodologies, and also their, their workforces broadly. And at that time, and you know, who knows, these days you'll have more insight. Many of those companies were actually bussing some of their employees from San Francisco into the valley about an hour's distance or so and giving them all sorts of snacks and free Wi-Fi and things on the bus and all sorts of perks, if you like. Um, but what they were ultimately doing is getting extra hour, an extra two hours a day of work out of their employees. And then when they arrived at the office, ping pong tables, kombucha on tap, mm. all the things. Um, but it was no frat party. You were working really hard and they were getting their pound of flesh, but it was all being trussed up with bows. What it, Now we, you work with organisations all over the world and you look at these habits and, and transformations. Um, how do you think it has changed in terms of the way that employers can incentivise employees in a pretty um, competitive talent market to want to choose one company over another? It's interesting all the perks, isn't it? Like, yeah, because it just it doesn't cut it. Like perks are just clearly... Uh, an extrinsic form of motivation where it's like external motivation, something is dangled in front of you like the carrot and the theory is that you'll want to do more of it because the carrot's really appealing. And I must say I do love carrots. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and you do turn orange if you eat too many carrots. This has happened to me. That's an important note how, for this. How many did you eat? I reckon I was eating two or three a day. And that's too much beta carotene and you turn orange. <laughs> so I just thought it was um, fake tan. <laughs> no, I limit myself to one carrot a day now. Anyway, so uh, so so while the carrot's there, you're feeling really motivated. But as soon as the carrot's taken away, your motivation dries up, which is why extrinsic motivators are generally, you know, not not the way to go. So you want to look at intrinsic motivators. And I think that, that is what the last two years have gotten people more in touch with like what are the things that really drive them and what are the things that uh that are meaningful for them and I think that's why we're seeing so many people vote with their feet because they're like no life's too short to work for a company that I don't identify with their purpose or their reason for being uh life's too short to work with workmates that are assholes so it's it's really the the deeper things that organizations need to look at changing as opposed to going okay i'm going to get this really fancy coffee machine and that'll make everyone want to come <laughs> back to work mm. um but no you should go mm, what's my purpose is like and do do we actually walk the talk of that purpose because a lot of companies have really cool sounding purposes but they don't really run things according to that purpose so that's really important are my people doing work that is meaningful and that matters to them? And can they see the impact of what they do and how that ladders up to achieving our purpose? Do we have a working atmosphere where we genuinely like each other? You know, I, th I think like a lot of people will talk in recruitment about, say, the, you know, the airport test. Like, would I be happy being like, you know, stuck in an airport for four hours with this person? Uh, like if the flight was delayed and I think that there's really something to that. Like we mm. don't want to just recruit people that are like us, but like life's too short mm. to work with 
people that you don't like. If we've got people listening who are thinking, that's me, I don't want to be in an airport for five minutes with the people (laughs) I work with, or I don't know what the meaning or the purpose is of the work that I do. What are some of your tips on how to refine or cultivate a job that brings joy and meaning? Mm, well, uh, resign from the current <laughs> job. No, no, I say that flippantly. Eject. Because, yeah, <laughs> it's the eject button. <laughs> what people should do is I always think it's a good idea to, to like, think about people and think about companies that, that you like. So think about what are the organisations that I, you know, maybe consume as a customer or that I read about in the news that seem to be doing really worthwhile things in this world. I think that is one really good starting point to to be proactive and go, this is the organisation I want to work for. But also to look at people who seem to be really energised by their job and ask them more about what they do and what their company does and maybe follow that track as well. So instead of just looking on Seek or LinkedIn at job ads or, you know, wherever the majority of jobs are advertised these days and kind of looking for job titles that are like your job title instead, I think get get really curious about companies and people that are doing things that you believe in and that there seems to be a lot of excitement about what they're doing. And I think that could be some good clues as to maybe where a better Mm. workplace could be. Mm. Mm. You've got a book coming out soon. And tell us about that. Does this um, touch on some of these areas that we're talking about? It does. So the book's called Time Wise, and it's a collection of the best and most novel strategies and tips and hacks that I've heard from guests on the How I Work podcast around how they use their time more wisely. And when I first started the podcast, the question that I had in my mind is, and there are all these really successful people in the world that have achieved so much. And, you know, some of them were like a similar age to me. And I thought, you know, but they've they've only got the same amount of hours in the day as me. So surely they're doing something differently, you know, than the rest of us mere mortals. And that was the, I guess, the quest that I set out on in the podcast to go, what are they doing differently? And the book's a collection of that. And is it sort of Atomic Habits meets Essentialism meets Tim Ferriss? Like what's yeah, its... that that is um that's a really good way to describe <laughs> it. I think. Uh, Thank you. I will use well, that I was in using my your publishing Frente ads. meets Alanis yes. Morris said. I think if we reference known quantities. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and so so I read a lot, uh, and and you know my work uh, goes into the areas of sort of time and productivity and uh, and looking at habits um, and rituals. I sometimes think that we get carried away with productivity itself as being some holier-than-thou thing, that I'm more productive, my Gantt chart's bigger than yours kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. And I know they're very effective toolkits inside organisations or for the individual to achieve goals, but where's the relationship between this hyper-productivity and this obsession we have with achievement and measuring it versus the human not doing but being? Mm. It's such a good question because... I, you know, absolutely get sucked in by those clickbaity titles around, you know, like what are the like 50 things that the world's most successful people do before breakfast and, you know, all those all those fun articles. But the book is like while it is a productivity book, broadly speaking, the title's really deliberate and it's not like how to do more in less time. Mm. It's how to just be wise with your time because we've only got a limited amount of hours, days, months, years on the earth. So let's use that time wisely. Like, you know, there is one part of the book that is about efficiency, but that's only one part. Like it also looks at like, um, you know, energy, like 
what are the things that we can do to bring more energy to what we do and more joy? And like, what are the things that we can do around connecting with other people to make those connections like easier to come by and richer when we find them? Um, You know, how do we get better at prioritizing and working on what really matters and doing away with the rest? So it is more broadly around how can we use the days that we have on this planet better? What's an example, one of your favorite or perhaps most surprising tips that came Yeah, look, I'll give you a couple. So one that I love, you know, given that the time that we're recording this, you know, people are going to events in real life and they're seeing people and we're now in that situation again where we can walk into a room and not know anyone and it can feel really intimidating and I'm sort of naturally quite shy at these events and, you know, get a bit nervous when I don't know anyone and it can feel like this ocean of people when you're at an event. And a strategy that Professor Marissa King gave me. So she's from Yale and she's a um, professor of organisational behaviour and specialises in social networks. And she wrote a great book called Social Chemistry. And she said, firstly, when you walk in, they're not an ocean, they're islands. People are in little groups. And what's important to look for is the, the number of people in a group. So she said, what you should do is you should look for odd numbered groups of people, like groups of three or five or seven. Which is different to looking for odd people. Which is, yeah, so don't look for odd people. Well, you can look for odd people, but that's a whole other strategy. And then people Uh, look at you at the door and go, they're counting. (laughs) That person's saying they're counting. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so look for odd numbered groups. And she said, why to do that is because people naturally communicate in dyads, groups of two or even numbers. And if you look for a group of three, there will be someone on the outer. And so if you go up to that group of three, you can quickly identify who's on the outer and form a dyad with them. And that will be a really easy and comfortable way in because chances are they will be feeling on the outer and they will welcome a new person joining Mm. the conversation. And I love that because it's so practical and it makes so much sense. I mean, Noah's Ark did that well. When you're waiting for a (laughs) tea tea bar at the (laughs) snow, um, they worked that out as well. Dating, which is something we want to talk to you about too, Mm. is that's just about finding one other person so that no one's left out. There's no third wheeling. Mm, yep, I exactly. Like a couple of other quick ones. Uh, one I learnt from Kevin Rose, who you guys might know, very famous venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. He found that he was picking up his phone a lot and he wanted to cut down on that behaviour. So what he did is he just wrapped a rubber band around his mobile phone, which meant that whenever he went to pick up his mobile phone, he'd have to remove the rubber band to unlock it or to use it in some way and it made him more conscious of all the pickups that he was doing and I think he reduced his pickups by about 70 percent just through tying a rubber band around his phone super simple and one other one that um that I really love is from Rachel Botsman who you guys are probably familiar with uh so she's a trust fellow at Oxford and um done some very popular TED talks and she used to annually create a to don't list so we all have to do list or most of us do she has a to don't list so things that she doesn't want to do and when the pandemic hit and she was doing a lot less traveling as was um sort of the way for her pre-pandemic she started doing that monthly so at the end of every month she would sit down and she'd think about what were the things that really drained me of energy and she would add that to her to don't list and every month she reviews that and she thinks what are the things that really drain me of energy what do i not want to do what do I want to say no no to and these are work and life things like you know I don't want to spend time with this person anymore Mm -hmm. um for example uh or you know I'm not going to speak at dinner events anymore for example and I I think that that's great so often productivity is like about adding more and more and doing more and more but 
actually using our time wisely can be about doing less and Mm. saying yes to fewer things. As you become more wise with your time and you know more and learn more through your work and and your own thinking, how do you stop people-pleasing and know what's a yes and a no for you these days? Generally, if it's not a hell yeah and I'm feeling really excited about it, it's a no. So most of what I get, like I reckon... 95% of the requests on my time, it's a no. Yeah, so I get asked to speak at a lot of events and I do speak for money, but I'll also get approached by lots of events that don't have a budget and unless I really believe in the cause and if I imagine that the event's coming up tomorrow and I'd be really, really pumped to be doing it, I say no. Uh, The people pleaser in me wants to say yes, but I'm very strict with that. Um, I get a lot of pitches for how I work, so I probably receive... I don't know, five to 10 pitches a day for um, from like PR people or guests directly wanting to be on the show. So I say no to, or I say yes to maybe one in 30 or one in 40 or something like that. So that's a lot of no. I get a lot of people asking to um, like pick my brain or have a coffee. Um, I hate and, that phrase, pick your brain. Oh, it's so yeah. annoying. Um, and, uh, and I generally only say yes to those if I feel like I'm like uniquely in a position where I can give advice, like for example, if someone's like, I'm considering a career in psychology. No, there's lots, lots of people that you can ask about that, but it's like, you know, if it's something really specific and I can see that they've done their research, like they haven't said, hi, Amanda. Yes. Samantha. Samantha. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And they've done their research and they've put in time. Then I'll, and then I'll sort of think about it. But yeah, I don't say yes to a lot. Mm. You said you speak for money. Do you ever wonder what your life would have been like if you sang for money? <laughs> rarely, actually. It rarely. Yeah. I, I have no regrets um, about walking away from the record deal. And funnily enough, so uh, it was a record deal with Roadrunner Records and they're like, bizarre, they're a heavy metal label. Um, they, you know, they had bands like Slipknot and Sepultura and stuff like that. But then they were having success with Nickelback at the time in the 90s. How You Remind Me. Uh, I loved that song. Yeah, that was a good song. Uh, and, and then they, they were sort of like getting a bit more mainstream, a bit more Oz Stereo rather than Triple J. And so they sort of um, thought, you know, that I was sort of along those more mainstream lines for them. So, he- but not heavy metal. And so anyway, uh, so it was John Satterley that was heading up the label at that time. And, you know, he was the one that was sort of ushering the record deal through. It must've been about 20 years later, 15 years later, I get a note on LinkedIn from John Satterley and, he, and he's like, I don't know, the chief digital officer of Village Roadshow. And we ended up doing work together, mm. which was kind of cool. Like, mm. you know, in the in the adult that I became that was not a musician. We did mm. work together, so that was fun. That is something I talk a lot about with my with my ambassador work with Seek, that every job that we have, it, it's never in isolation. The skills, the network, what we like, what we don't like, what energises us, what drains us, it, it comes from all of those experiences, let alone a, a networking situation like the one you've just described. I think it's mm. good to be reminded of that on so many levels, be kind to everyone because they'll come back. <laughs> There's a karma yeah. piece there. But mm. just that it all, it all counts. Nothing's wasted. Mm. Well, you're building skills along the way. I mean, even if you have an unconventional career, so-called, or a portfolio career, then you're carrying skills forward um, mm. from all sorts of domains. So, mm. yeah, don't don't burn bridges um, or build your enemies a golden bridge to retreat to. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that one recently. It's a Buddhist. <laughs> now, Amantha, in 2019 you were named as one of the top 100 uh, women of 
influence for the Australian AFR. AFR. But in the same year, you also separated with your husband. So 2019 was a big year for you. What what was it like? And tell us about that year. It was a very big year. So uh, yeah, the women of influence thing was <laughs> was not a particularly big thing that happened that year. But yeah, leaving my marriage was the big thing. You know, I, I feel like there are a lot of people that are in relationships that, you know, it's like that book, which I remember picking up years ago, that it's something like good and good enough to stay bad enough to go or like one of those titles. Um, I can't quite remember the exact name. But yeah, I think I, I question things for a while in terms of is is this the right relationship for me and I think it's really easy when you've got kids to go I'm gonna stay for the sake of the child or the children but I remember you know a few things happened in 2019 that that made me think I, I don't think this is the relationship for me and I remember like one night just thinking if it wasn't for Frankie would I still be in this marriage? And, and my answer was 100% I wouldn't be. And then I went down the line of questioning, well, is this then the relationship that I want a role model mm. for my daughter? And the answer was absolutely not. And after I'd answered those questions in my mind, the decision suddenly became a really easy one that I'd probably been sitting on for a long, long time because I think it's really scary to leave a marriage and I you know, falsely assumed that, okay, well, if I leave a marriage in my 40s, then I guess I'm single for the rest of my life, uh, which is a flawed assumption, another faulty, mm. another faulty belief. Mm. I think it's I think it's one of the bravest things that I've done. It was not easy. And the, you know, couple of years that, that followed were really, they were hard in many ways, but they were also quite joyous because I knew absolutely that it was the right decision. How? It felt, it, it well, it feels, because it still feels, very freeing when you're in a relationship that is not serving you you know I don't think we were like you know it was good for either of us but it, it wasn't terrible you know it, it wasn't like um my ex-husband uh like you know had a drug problem or like something that you go oh, well that's obviously not all right of course I have to leave it was much more you know nuanced than that and it's like when you're in a relationship, the things that are hard, it's it's like sometimes you say to yourself, oh, gosh, I have to put up with that for the rest of my life. And that's quite a confronting thought. And then when you leave, you suddenly remember, like I remember just I had so many moments where I'm like, I don't have to put up with that for the rest of my life. I don't have to deal with that for the rest of my life. I don't have to deal with that for the rest of my life. And that's really freeing. And, you know, now I like um, I am with someone new and it kind of makes me realise everything that was was missing that I didn't realise was possible in a relationship. Before we get to the new person, Mm. between leaving your marriage and then finding the new, you we've talked a bit prior to today around sort of dating in your 40s and what's that like and how do you even fucking do that um and (laughs) what were some of the things that you did to try and help you find someone can you describe that (laughs) i can so i approached it like a work goal like i was very proactive and very active like i spent a lot of time towards it because it was a goal like i i do believe that life is better shared when you can find a really great partner or a great teammate and so 
I most of most of my dating was done during Melbourne's lockdowns or you know I don't know what was it 256 days or something something hideous like that trigger trigger uh, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll just put a warning at the start of the episode <laughs> we do talk about lockdown um so I was very reliant on the apps so I had a bit of a system though because the apps can be quite painful and and so like I had a system of like how would I make those initial decisions um you know just trying to develop heuristics of like making quick decisions with profiles so, so, so I, how, how do you do that you want a hell yeah yeah you do you do so there were certain things I don't know how much detail you want but like for example so I'm just trying to think the firstly they needed to be able to write so they needed to be like no typos or grammatical errors in a profile which sounds quite superficial but I think it says a lot like firstly it says that they've actually proofread their profile which suggests that they're invested in the process because there's a lot of people that are not that are maybe on it just to get likes and an ego boost but they're not even looking for a relationship I think that I've heard that that's quite common it also suggests that they can right <laughs> and that they're somewhat intelligent which um someone intelligent is that was a quality that matters to me and and so that that rules out a lot of people that was a really key one and then you know there are other things like uh like you know I did ideally want someone that was taller than me but that's easy because I'm five four so I'm on the shorter side uh and I did want someone that was university educated which um is not to say like if I met someone really fantastic who didn't go to university that that would be a deal breaker but more because you're trying to find shortcuts that signal other things that was quite a helpful one um because you can like to an extent assume if someone went to university they're a curious kind of person and they value learning and growth um obviously you can value those things if you don't go to university but i think it's more common to have those attributes if you did that's a huge generalization but when you're swiping through like maybe a thousand profiles you need shortcuts to not be just like spending 10 minutes deliberating over every profile which would just make you go insane not clinically insane i feel hesitant about using those terms as a psychologist but you know what i mean um and then with looks looks is an interesting one because the apps are geared towards making superficial decisions do i like the look of this person but i would try to go if this person had the best personality in the world, would I find them attractive enough to um, to be intimate with? So I, I tried to sort of have that as a bit of a primer as opposed to just going, am I attracted to them or not? Because that's not really fair. Because I think people can grow in attractiveness and certainly that's what the research suggests. Uh, so those were some of the initial things. Then I would always do a phone screener so I'd have a phone chat before meeting if we matched and if we exchanged a few messages and they could continue down the can spell can use grammar correctly <laughs> path uh, so I would generally send an audio message first which would hopefully initiate an audio message back again tell me if we're going too much into the weeds here I think a lot of people like the weeds okay all right good good we'll stay in the weeds uh so I sent an audio message which would hopefully prompt an audio message back because I feel like you can get a good sense of someone's energy in how they speak 
And uh, even though most people are quite uncomfortable speaking and hearing their own voice and, you know, everyone hates their own voice, whatever, get over it. Um, So you can get a sense of someone's vibe. And I found that very useful for just making, again, quick decisions. Uh, And also, do I like their speaking voice? As superficial as that sounds, like you don't want someone whispering sweet nothings in your ear when you really hate their voice. (laughs) So, uh, So that was a good screening method. And so if they pass the audio test, then we'd go to phone screen. So we'd definitely have a phone chat and it's like, like if this person, like if it's an enjoyable phone conversation where if at the end of the phone conversation I would look forward to speaking to them again, then it was like a yes, let's let's do it, let's have a date. And if not, then often it was sort of it was clear within about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, so that was that was just the thing to get to the first date. Then in terms of getting that, to the- that's we're just that's the first date. Yeah, that's getting to the first face to face date. Yeah, yeah, but also with like. With COVID, like, you don't just want to be meeting up with anyone face-to-face because there's then all the health risks and stuff as well. So I did want quite a thorough screening method. It makes me sound totally anal, but I do believe that, God, you could spend so much time on this stuff, and I did, but, um, but hey, like, it worked in the end. So then I reckon I probably had, I don't know, 30 first dates, I reckon, oh, wow. over the course of a couple of years, maybe a bit less than a couple of years, uh, thereabouts. So that's a lot. And then, again, like with a lot of people, you can tell within the first five, ten minutes whether there is something there. And I would go into dates knowing that the research suggests that uh, – a spark, an initial spark is not predictive of relationship satisfaction. I would always keep that in the back of my mind and I'd really try hard to give people the benefit of the doubt when there wasn't that sort of sparkiness at the beginning. And I wasn't expecting like with, you know, whoever I did end up with. And I did have a few like shorter to medium term relationships over that those two years of a few months. And that was good, like in learning more about what I liked and didn't like. But yeah, the it's I did try to give people the benefit of the doubt, even when there wasn't a spark. Even if it was like you sit down and you just go, <laughs> N-O. <laughs> so is your next book called Tinderwise? <laughs> because yes. how was this? Your checklist, If forgive me for brutalising it, can spell, can think, are tall, can speak, vibing, hell yeah. I think that's what we got to. Yeah. This is fascinating because, yeah, the more people, uh, you know, who are trying to find, if not love, but companionship and want to share their life with someone in their 40s and 50s, it's, yeah, it's a complex kind of minefield out there of trying to find that. Yeah, and I love what you've done is you've taken the way you see the world and you've applied it in just yet another domain, which is really a reflection of authenticity. You care about metrics. You care about purpose. You want it to be meaningful. You want it to be time efficient. That's who, that's what matters to you. So why, why would we, you know, throw all that out just when we start dating when those are the ways we operate and they've served you well in the workspace? Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that you would take that kind of framework and hang it here. And then I know because we've just pulled it apart in the weeds in great <laughs> detail that some people could be like, oh, that's so anal and that's so detailed and who's got time and it's I wouldn't. Awesome. And what about just seeing someone across the room and feeling the, you know, flutters? And But it, yeah. it, it shows that there are many different ways mm. and I think we need to be open to that. Yeah. Love, love will find a way. It really pissed me off when people said, you just have to stop trying so hard, just let it happen. And it's like... Yeah, you try letting it happen in a fucking pandemic where no one is going to bars 
I don't have a work, I'm remote first at Ingentium. So I'm not having water cooler conversations with anyone at the office other than maybe a plumber if things get blocked at home. <laughs> and also, if you, want to, if you want to run a marathon, you don't just let it happen. Yeah. Yeah, they've yeah. got to do the training. Yeah. Do, you, do you mind uh, talking a bit about that experiment that I and a number of others yes. got involved in? Because it was pretty novel and I, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, so I got to a point where I was well and truly over the apps and was uh, like, there's just there's a lot of incompatible people to sort through before you find people that are compatible and so I was just like oh there's got to be a better way you know I was, I was thinking well I've got like you know lots of people that I know and like I, I reach lots of people through the work that I do so surely there's got to be a better way of you know finding uh, potential matches so I put it out to some close friends and I'm like hit me up with some ideas on what like what could I be doing like you know these are sort of like the resources that I've got access to got back a bunch of ideas uh, someone said why don't you crowdsource it but just crowdsource it with sort of like not close friends that like you know your close friends they know you're dating and like if they knew someone they would have set you up um but sort of people who know you or know of you they get your vibe and but their networks are completely different to yours and so i'm like well that that's that was like the winning idea um (laughs) and so then i i wrote like a long list of i think about 50 people who fit into that category but i only reach out to 10 of those and Mads was one of those where I basically sent an email saying I'm single I'm looking for someone I put together a brief so I did a one pager of what I was looking for uh and tried to like just narrow it down to the essential things like not a shopping list and I said do you want to be part of a four-week experiment where I'll send you some thought starters every week for you know racking your brains on different people that you might know within your networks that might fit this brief and then would sort of like think about like what are some behavioral nudges that I could do during that four weeks and then anyone that put forward a match I'd donate money to charity on their behalf um and so that was that was the thing and I felt I felt like excruciatingly nervous sending out that email like I like part of me was just like dying of embarrassment inside um but the response that I got was actually like quite amazing from every single person and everyone was so excited to help it didn't actually lead to me meeting the person that I'm with now and funnily enough I got back on hinge after that didn't work but it's like I think that was the long game in terms of just planting that seed in people's mind in the end like it wasn't just a four week like campaign or something or project um but then I did get back um I got on hinge which I hadn't been on like in a year or something and you know the timing was right and that's how I ended up meeting the person that I'm with now the other thing that's coming up for me is that you were saying earlier on in our chat that it's so hard for you to ask your team what did they think but you'd already applied that that approach in your dating Mm. life you were able to ask people you didn't feel that you had to have all the answers in the relationship space only in the work in the workspace yeah that's funny isn't it well, yeah that's one word for yeah. it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah what and and also with all the shifts toward working real and being authentic and the pandemic forced us all to throw off our cloaks and show up as we are with our babies and messy houses and bedrooms in the background how do we check ourselves to make sure we are being who we are mm. at work and in our lives mm. Uh, mm. are there some conflicting identities and ask of ourselves in those two spheres yeah yeah and what bars are we setting for ourselves in those two spheres anywho that's for another day yeah we like to ask all of our guests this final question when you think about the world at large and how challenging and messy and complex it can be who do you think is doing human well 
it's hard to answer because it's like, oh, do I go close to home or do I go far away from home? Um, so maybe, so maybe I'll do both. I do think my daughter is doing human very, very well. I think it's hard. Like when your parents get divorced and you're like shuttled between houses every few nights. And I just think she's so incredibly resilient and she finds so much joy in just the littlest of things that, you know, um, I just find that, you know, incredibly inspiring, like how, you know, she, she copes with what, um, was thrust upon her in her life. And then in terms of away from home, someone's thinking I always find very, very inspiring is Adam Grant. Mm. Um, he's a fellow organizational psychologist uh, and the host of the Work Life podcast and someone whose tactics and tips are in time wise. And I just, I'm very inspired by mm. everything he puts out into yeah, the world. He's brilliant. He is doing human very well. Mm. Oh, thank you so much for sharing your world and your work and yourself with us. It's been a great delight to talk mm. to you. Mm. My pleasure. Something for everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do do human human well. well.